But if you have your Bibles, I invite you again to turn to 1 Corinthians. And we are at chapter 15 now. This is either the 39th or the 40th message in this expositional series. We lost track, at least I had lost track when I was away as to where, where I was. I'm calling it 39. Nathan, is that right? He's the one who put me on track. He keeps good racket. But this is the 39th message on the book of Corinthians, First Corinthians. And we are at chapter 5, and this is the third message on chapter 15. Now, I was going to do a review again of where we've come from in this book, because it's such an interesting, fascinating book, and it gives us some instructions for how the church is to operate today. Paul is dealing with some difficulties at Corinth. He deals not only with practical items, but also doctrinal. The practical items had to do with too many people want to speak when they shouldn't speak. The tongue speakers wanted to speak when they shouldn't speak. The prophets wanted to speak when they shouldn't speak. And the women, the married women especially, wanted to speak when they shouldn't speak. Paul had one message for them. What was it? Be silent. Shut up. Wait and do it right. Because why? God is a God of order. Right? He does things decently and in order. And he tells us how to do that in chapter 13. Chapter 13, as we've, as we've seen... Paul details everything that the Corinthians were doing in the church and showed them that the reason why it was wrong was because they were not doing it out of love. They were arrogant. They were not looking after the, out for the other person. They were not bearing up with one another and so on. Everything mentioned in chapter 13 is a direct reflection on what the church was doing wrong. And Paul says the way to correct it is to show love one for another. He also, that was the practical issues, or at least some of them. There were many others, as you know. But he also had to deal with doctrinal matters. In chapter 2, for instance, he had to deal with the doctrine of the gospel. And he had to focus on, again, it says, no matter how uh, disconcerting the preaching of the cross might be, you still need to preach the cross of Jesus Christ. That was an essential part of the gospel message. And it made an impact not only on what we preach, but how we live what we preach as well. Now he comes to chapter 15. He has to deal with another crucial element of the gospel, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's where we are today. Now, last time we saw that Paul uh, was trying to demonstrate the fact that the resurrection was a real resurrection of a physical body. And that's his point, because there were teachers, false teachers at Corinth, who did not believe in the physical resurrection. We don't have time to develop the philosophy that was prevalent then concerning the Greeks. But basically, you know, and we talked about this sometime earlier, they had the overall idea that if, the, that if it was physical, it was sinful. If, it was, if the body was a sinful thing. It's only the spiritual that was real and that was good. And so they had a real low concern or estimate for the body and they did not believe in a bodily resurrection and that came into the church and that's another thing that the that the this study shows us in Corinth the impact of philosophy from outside the church how it impacts the people in the church you see and that's what Paul is dealing with here and he goes into detail to show that if Jesus Christ did not rise physically as a human being then there was no resurrection. 
no genuine resurrection. And that's what he's emphasizing here. He showed this first of all by saying, if you remember as we started chapter 15, that he was the first fruits of the first resurrection. Isn't that right? The first fruits. In other words, what was coming after him would be just like him. The first fruit is not different from the, the regular harvest. So he's identifying himself, first of all, as a human, as a human being. And he's also identifying the fact that when we are raised, we're going to be raised just like him as a human being. Now, when we come to the passage we are at today in, in verse 29, I think is where we pick up. He is going to continue to try to convince the Corinthians of the historicity of the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he moves now from the what I call the biblical or theological reasons that he gave in the opening verses to some philosophical, to, to some practical uh, arguments for his case. This is how he begins in verse 29, I think it is. If the dead will not be raised, what point is there in people being baptized for those who are dead? Why do it unless the dead will someday rise again? Paul is now using a practical argument to present his case. And he's looking at their religious practice. Now this verse is probably one of the uh, most curious verses in the entire Bible. Nobody knows what it means. There are over 200 options you could choose from as to the meaning of this verse. 200. I thought it was only three and four until I started to look into it. There are over 200 different interpretations of this passage. And no one can tell whether they're right or wrong. So I won't even waste my time to go into it and say, hey, this is the one I think, because it doesn't make any difference anyway. But the point that Paul was making here is that whatever it might refer to, if they were doing it, it wouldn't make sense for them to do it. Because they were saying that there would be a resurrection. And they were baptizing, as they said, in these people in place of the, other, in place of the dead. If there is no resurrection, why do it? So he was putting in question their religious practices. Why do what you were doing? And by the way, the Corinthians probably knew what this meant. If anybody knew what it meant, they did, right? He says, why do you do what you are doing if there's no resurrection? It wouldn't make sense. Your practice would be foolish. So that's a practical argument that he brings to them. But then he moves on from the practical aspect of their, min of their work, and he goes on to cite his own experiences. He wants to argue for the resurrection based on his own experience. Verse 30, why should we ourselves risk our lives hour by hour? For I swear, dear brothers and sisters, this is the New Living Translation, that I face death daily. This is as certain as my pride in what Christ Jesus our Lord has done for you. And what value was there in fighting wild beasts, those people at Ephesus, if there were no resurrection from the dead? So he's looking at his own experience. He's simply saying, I would be a fool if I would risk my life every day preaching a gospel that says that Jesus Christ was raised bodily from the dead if he were not in fact raised bodily from the dead. I would be a fool risking my life every day. And included in that risking the fight that he had to have with people in the church. Paul faced 
persecutions daily in his life. Not only from outside the church, but from inside the church as well. And so he's saying, hey, if there was no resurrection, I would be a fool to risk my life every day in preaching that gospel. But then he moves on now from their religious practice and his personal experience to present an argument, what I call a philosophical reality. He says, if there is no resurrection, let's feast or eat and drink for tomorrow we die. I'm sure you've heard that before. In fact, we have Christians who like to sometimes say that, you know, um, even if it were true that there were no afterlife, there were no meeting God and so on, I would still live a better life if I don't be involved in all of these immoral things and so on. Paul doesn't agree with that, believe it or not. Paul is saying here, in this particular case here, that if there were no judgment, then you should just let it go hang out. Why? Because you have nothing to fear afterwards. Because remember it says, after death what? Comes the judgment. If there's no judgment after death, there's nothing to fear. There's nothing to be afraid of. So Paul wouldn't agree with those who say, hey, you know, I'm not sure whether there's a heaven or a hell, but I think I'm going to live a good life anyway just in case. Paul doesn't agree with that philosophy at all. He says if there is if there is a judge if there is going to be no judgment then you should just live a live the life as any way you want. Paul is making a very important point here. If you scripture says and it says very clearly that God has given all judgment into who into hands of who Jesus Christ. He says, he has appointed a day in which he will what? Judge the world by that man whom he has appointed. That man is who? Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ is not raised from the dead physically, there will be no judgment. You see, Paul says, therefore, as far as the the resurrection of Jesus Christ is concerned, our accountability to God depends upon the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's going to judge us as a man. The man Christ Jesus. But then he gives a pastoral and apostolic admonition. And I'm going to run through it a little quickly because of time. He says, and again I'm using another translation here. Don't be fooled by those who say such things. For, in other words, these these, um, false teachers were teaching that thing that there'd be no judgment after death. You could live as you want. The Epicurean lifestyle they call it. He says, don't be fooled by those who say such things, for bad company corrupts good character. Verse 34, think carefully about what is right and stop sinning. This is Paul now. For for your shame, I say that some of you don't know God at all. This is a powerful passage of scripture here in his indictment of these Corinthians. He says, we need to listen carefully and give heed to the admonition that he is giving. We need to do the same thing today. We need to give heed to the admonition of this passage. Don't be fooled, he says, by those who say such things, for bad company corrupts good character. In other words, watch out. If you hang around with false teachers, you'll you'll become corrupted in your life the way they are. See, there's a connection with true doctrine and true living, right doctrine and right living. Right doctrine results in right living. The women 
like she was saying today, don't be concerned about doing what is right, only be concerned with right righteous. But being righteous have to do with doing what is right. You cannot separate being, doing what is right from righteousness, especially in your stance before God. Watch out, he says, if you hang around false teachers, you'll become corrupted in the way you live. That means listening to them on TV as well. If that's all your diet is, listening to false teachers, you're going to begin to live what you hear them teach. This is what Paul is warning us of here. So he says, think carefully about what is right. Be discerning. If you do not break away from these false teachers, you're sinning. He's actually giving the same admonition he gave in chapter 5 concerning the immoral man. Remember the man who was living with the father's wife and so on? What did he say about that, that fellow who's doing that? Excommunicate him, get rid of him. Isn't that saying? He was taught, remember he talked about the leaven? A little leaven, leavens the whole lump. He's teaching the same truth here. If you listen to false doctrine, that's going to affect the way you live. How do you deal with it? Get rid of it. Don't associate with it. Flee. Run away from it is what he's saying. Be discerning. Hold on to the truth and stop sinning by listening to error and false teachers. That's what Paul is saying here. And he said the only way you can do that is to get away from it. Don't fool around with it. Excommunicate it if you want from your life. And he says some of these people are probably unsaved who's teaching this doctrine. Some of them are probably unsaved in spite of their profession otherwise. Paul implies that here. And so he says, shame on you for allowing people to hold these kinds of doctrine to fellowship with you, to be a part of your body. And now when we come to Jude, Jude gets real strong. He calls them all kinds of names. He calls them clouds without water. He calls them shoals, the hidden reefs in our worship service. That's what Jude talks about. The hidden reefs in our worship time. He says, shame on you for allowing people who teach false doctrine to fellowship with you. Get rid of them. Do not be involved with them at all. That's Paul's teaching there concerning the arguments for the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. But now Paul is also aware of the fact that people will be asking questions about the resurrection. And so he deals with them now. He says, someone may ask, how will the dead be, ri- be raised? And secondly, what kind of bodies will they have? Now he answers the first question in verse 36. He says, what a foolish question. Now I don't think he's calling these people fools in that sense or being ignorant. He's just saying, hey, stop and think a while. Consider nature. He did the same thing in chapter 11 when he talked, now we're going into another problem, we talked about woman's short hair and a woman's and man's long hair, remember? He said, doesn't what? Nature itself teach you? He's saying the same here. Look at nature. Nature teaches you about the resurrection. And he talks about a seed and the plant and so on. He says, God teaches us through nature if we would just be aware of it. Don't be unaware. Don't be ignorant of the teaching that God gives us. Paul talks about the same thing in Romans 1 about nature teaching us. And who is the teacher through nature? God. God is the one who uses nature to teach us truths. That's what Paul is saying here. He says, when you put a seed into the ground, 
It doesn't grow into a plant unless it dies first. What he's trying to establish here that before there's resurrection, there has to be what? Death. You see, that seed, when you put it in the ground, before it comes as a plant, it has to die first. And then it becomes a plant. And so he says, first of all, death must precede growth. The plant is the same as the seed, he's going to say, but with a difference. Notice what's in verse 37. And that, Now please, this is an important passage here. As you go through it, because we start now to talk about the nature of the body when it's raised. What kind of body is it? In fact, next time we're going to be dealing with uh, what kind of a body do we have after death. Oh, the afterlife. There are all kinds of thinking about this. And we want to talk about that next time. To show how Paul had a real difficulty. Paul had three different options as to what he wanted to do. He says, I could stay here with you, it's good for you. Or I could go to be with Christ, which is good for me. But then he said there was something better than both of those. And you know what it was? It was the resurrection or the rapture. And we're going to be looking at that and see how it impacted Paul's life. He says, verse 37, what you put in the ground is not the plant that will grow. It's only a bare seed, maybe a wheat or whatever you are planting. It's only the seed. It is not the plant. But I don't know if uh, Basil is here, but if you take a seed and break it open, what do you see inside? A kernel, or you see a plant, really. It's inside there. Especially if you take a bean seed, for instance. If you break it open, you'll actually see something like a little plant already. It's, it's inside. The point is that although the seed is different from the plant that grows, it's the same. It's the same with a difference. You see, this is where continuity comes in. In other words, we are human, uh, humanity, if you want, comes into play. There is a teaching now that when you die, your spirit and your body stays within the grave. You remember nothing, you know nothing. And when you are raised again, you're actually a new person. You're a different person. You're not the same person. You cannot know anybody else because you are different and they are different. You're not the same as it was when you die. Paul says that is not true. There is a difference. There's a sameness with a difference. And this is what he's going to talk about here. He says, each plant by divine design is different from each other, but the same as a seed. Now, do you know that plants have DNAs? Do you know that? Each plant has their own DNA. The same DNA, well not the same, but the same way you and I have a DNA that tells us everything about what we're going to be. The color of our hair, the color of our eyes, how tall. The plant is like that. Plants are like that. They have a DNA as well. That's why every plant, although they may seem the same, they are unique in their sameness. Do you understand that? I'll explain it to me later what I meant when I said that, because I didn't. The point he's saying here is, yes, the seed goes into the plant as a seed. When it grows as a plant, although it seems to be different from the seed, it is still the same, although it's different. It's like a metamorphosis that takes place. Uh, you know, metamorphosis, when you apply it to a butterfly, for instance, you see this ugly little caterpillar squiggling on the leaf and so on. It goes into its cocoon, and then it starts to come out of that cocoon. You, you know it, right? And it comes into a beautiful, into a beautiful 
butterfly. Something happens in that process. I'm sure you've heard of the story of the little fella who tried to help uh, um, the butterfly to come out of the cocoon, right? But in doing so, what did he do? He actually destroyed it because that effort was a part of the way it grew. Notice what this text says here now. It says, God gives it the new body he wants it to have. Who does the metamorphosizing? God does it. See that? God himself does it in that process. While we are in the ground. Now, how he does it, I don't know. Remember, Jesus talked about this himself. He talks about the planting of false teachings and so on. He says that uh, the farmer will plant a seed. And then he goes to sleep. Right? And then God does what? Brings the increase. While we are sleeping. The point he's trying to make is God is the one who produces growth. We plant. God is the one who does the growth. Well, the same principle is here. When we die and we are put into the grave, God takes over from that point. Everything that happens to that body, God is in control of. He's going through a process of what I call spiritual metamorphosis. You know what I mean, right? You know what I mean. Metamorphosizing. He goes through that process of metamorphosizing, making us into that person, that new person he wants us to be. Each one of us will have a different DNA in our glorified body the same way we have a different DNA right now in our physical body. That's the continuity. That's how I am going to know Jerry. I'm not sure I want to go. Anyway, that's how I'm going to know Jerry. That's how I'm going to know Andre. That's how I'm going to know Carl. That's how I'm going to know all. That's how you can know because we have that same continuity there being human. You understand what I'm saying? That's the distinction here. He says, now, each plant then, by divine design, is different from each other, but the same as its seed. God is the one who will give us the body that he has for us. We don't know how that is. Remember what, the gospel, what John says in, in the epistle, he says, we do not know now what we shall be, but we know that when we see him, he put, we shall be as he is, right? Like him, for we shall see him as he is, and we really don't know what that means. That's why John says we don't know. You see, we don't know. We shall see him as he is, and we will be as he is, whatever that may be. That's the miraculous thing that happens then in the grave. God brings about a remarkable change to that bare seed that is placed into the ground. Then he gives the new body all of the characteristics he wants it to have. Notice it's God who does it, not man, not the angels. God does it. And he does it while we are asleep. We are asleep in Jesus. A different plan grows from each kind of seed. And he goes on to explain that now. He wants to show that each seed produces its own distinct but different plant. It has all the characteristics of the seed, but it is still different from the seed that was planted. It's the same, as I said, with a difference. And then he goes on to talk about other kinds of flesh. Flesh of fish. Flesh of, not, 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 flesh of birds. And then he talks also about the same principle having to do with uh, the stars, the planets, and everything else. Notice what he says. Similarly, there are different kinds of flesh. One kind of humans, 
another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. And also with heavenly bodies. They are the same with the difference in glory. Now, please get that. This is a wonderful truth. And, you know, this is the time Jerry should be preaching this because Jerry is Pentecostal. And they like to jump all over the place. And this is the place you could really start jumping here. There's no doubt about that at all. What is he saying? You remember in the transfiguration, Peter, James, and John saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he was shining. Was that right? He was glowing. He was in his transformed body. As the first fruit, that's what Jesus looked like. He was glowing. And I believe we are going to glow too in that new body. Because we're going to be just like him. Understand? And then he goes on to show now there's a difference of brightness in this star and that and so on. And he says, so it is in the bodies that we're going to be raised with. So somehow, based, I believe, on what we do here on earth, this is where the judgment seat of Christ comes in and the kind of rewards that we have. I believe how those rewards are going to be shown from the difference is how we glow in glory. We're going to be like Jesus but we're going to glow differently depending on the rewards we have. Now, there are going to be difference in rewards. You realize that, right? There are going to be difference in judgment as well. Now, that's a hard thing for me to understand. How are there going to be different degrees of punishment in hell? But the Bible teaches it, I believe. The Bible also teaches there are going to be different degrees in rewards. How is that going to be demonstrated? Well... How is it going to be possible for all of us to be in glory, worshiping Christ, and have no concern about competition or anything else? But in the Bible says that he will wipe away what? All tears. And that means I believe we've got to do that before we get into glory where we're going. Because he's not going to do it in glory. That means somewhere between the rapture and uh uh, entrance into glory, however you want to phrase that, there's going to be the Bema, the judgment seat of Christ. And I believe that's when our tears are going to be wiped away. But it's not going to be tears because we're being judged in the sense of condemnation. But I believe rather than because, hey, you know, I could have done so much more if I had taken up those opportunities that God had given me. I would have gotten a different reward. But that's the last time you're going to feel that way. God is going to wipe away all of that. And he, the rewards that we have, we will be able to enjoy in glory, even though we differ in rewards with those that are there. What you have, if it's greater than mine, I'm not going to concern that because I am going to be enjoying what he has given me to the fullest. My capacity then to glow will depend upon the gifts or the rewards that God has given me. I believe that's what we have here. Notice what he says, verse 40. There are also bodies in the heavens and bodies on the earth. The glory of the heavenly bodies is different from the glory of the earthly bodies. The sun has one kind of glory, while the moon and stars each have another kind. And even the stars differ from each other in the glory. They are all heavenly bodies, but they differ in glory. Now apply that to the bodies of the, when we are transformed. We are all going to be different bodies but we're going to differ. We are going to have glorified bodies, the same, but we're going to differ in glory. That's what Paul is teaching here. 
He says that. Look at verse 32. In the same way. That's the application. In the same way. The same way that these different things differ in glory, although they're the same. Then the same way, he says here in verse 40. Notice carefully. The resurrection of the dead. Notice he says the resurrection of the dead. He's speaking specifically of resurrection bodies here. He emphasizes the difference or contrast between the body of believer that is buried and the body when it is raised or grown. Our earthly bodies, he says, are planted in the ground when we die, but they will be raised to live forever. Death no longer present. They are planted in the ground when we die, but when they, when they will be raised, they will live forever. Verse 43. Our bodies are buried in brokenness, but they will be raised, how? In glory. Same bodies, mind, but there's a change. They are buried in weakness, but they will be raised in strength. I'm looking forward to that. Verse 44. They are buried as natural human bodies, but they will be raised as spiritual bodies. For just as there are natural bodies, there are also spiritual bodies. Now, he's not talking about spiritual bodies as being a little vapor or something floating around, all right? He's talking about a body that is fit to live in a different place than the physical. He's talking about uh, a body that is now, a body that is now fit to live in an environment that will never pass away. He's talking about an environment that is incorruptible. That's why we have to be, we have to put on incorruption. Because he's going on to say that corruption shall, cannot what? Inherit incorruption cannot coexist that's why it'll be changed and then he gives a theological expression explanation he says verse 45 the first man adam became a living being but the last adam that is christ a life-giving spirit what comes first is the natural body then the spiritual body comes later adam the first man was made from the dust of the earth remember we spoke about adam before being the first Adam and the last Adam in Romans chapter 5. Adam, the first man, was from the dust of the earth, while Christ, the second man, came from heaven. Earthly people are like the earthly man, and heavenly people are like the heavenly man. Just as we are now like the earthly man, we will someday be like the heavenly man. Remember, we said that, in all, that everybody who is born is born, what? In Adam. So we take on his characteristics. When we accept by grace, through faith, Jesus Christ, we become in him. Then we take on his characteristics. He formed a new race. The same way Adam has a race that was doomed for corruption. When we come in Christ, a new race is formed now that is headed for incorruption. You see? There's a new race altogether. That's why that's, there's an essential need for transformation. This is sort of a summary of everything. He says, what I am saying, dear brothers and sisters, is that our physical bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Our physical bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Remember, some time ago, he said to Nicodemus, unless you be born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Right? Now, he's talking about if you, if you are not, if your body is not born again, it cannot enter the kingdom of God. The only, remember now, our, our spirits are already redeemed. Isn't that right? 
What we are waiting for now is what? The redemption of the body. Read Romans 8. Groaning and everything. We are groaning for the redemption of the body. I call that the second birth, if you want, of the human body. Because the same way the spirit had to be born again, so does the human body have to be transformed or born again to enter the kingdom of God. And when does that happen? It happens at the rapture and the resurrection. How do we know this? Because God has revealed it. Look at verse uh, 51. Let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. This is what he calls a mystery. It was hidden before. The resurrection of the dead was not hidden in the Old Testament. It was taught very clearly. Even Job knew about it, right? But what was hidden was this transformation that will take place. We will not all die. That was not hidden in the Old Testament. But we will what? All be transformed. That is the mystery. It will happen in a moment, in the, twink, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever. And we who are living will also be transformed. So notice the difference here. Those who are dead will be resurrected. Those who are raptured will be transformed. Now, the dead will also be transformed, but the living will not be resurrected. Why? Because they're living. It's only the dead who are resurrected. That's why Paul, when you look at it, Paul did not want to go to be with Christ. That was not his greatest desire. His greatest desire was to have his body transformed. Read the scriptures very carefully. You will see that. And we'll talk about that next time, Lord willing, and we look at the three options that Paul had. He says, our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. That's our mortal bodies now, of course. Why? Because this enables us to experience, our mortal bodies right now, enables us to experience temporal life on earth. These bodies must be transformed, <clears throat> excuse me, into immortal bodies, which will enable us to experience eternal life in a heavenly sphere, wherever that sphere may be. That heavenly sphere is not some place up there where we floating around in clouds. All right? Our bodies will be transformed in such a way that we're going to be able to live in a glorious state no matter where we are. Because the Bible teaches that heaven is coming to earth. True or false? Right? And the only thing that's going to change is that we are going to be, our bodies are going to be transformed in such a way <clears throat> that we'll be able to uh, live gloriously in a situation that causes us to experience life the way Jesus Christ himself experiences. And that's a wonderful truth. Amen? Let's just me end with this one. Then verse 54, Then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies, notice what he says, Then our dying bodies, believe it or not, you're dying. I know I am. That is, my body is. Right? Is dying all the time. Our body, when our dying bodies are being transformed into bodies that will never die. Isn't that great? Do you know that, I think it's Pastor Benley or somebody who have a little more intellect than I have. How many years does it take for your body to be completely renewed? For all of your cells to change? I think it's seven. Do you know that? That you change every seven years? Is that right? Can anybody confirm that? Our bodies, all of our cells undergo a complete change. So every seven years or so, we're a different person. As far as our makeup is concerned. You see? Well, once this change takes place, that's not going to be necessary anymore. 
our bodies will never have to change anymore because we are going to have a body just like Christ. He says, now notice, I love this one. Then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? I think this is a chorus. And I believe that God's people are going to be singing this as we're transformed and as we've been beamed up into glory. We're going to be jeering the devil, the grave, and death. Yeah, 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 yeah. We won. No more death. No more sin. No more grave. And we're going to be singing this in a triumphant way as we go into glory. And God's people are going to be jeering the devil, death, and the grave. Amen. <clears throat> you remember, he goes on here, verse 56, he says, Sin is the sting that results in death. What gives death its power? It's, or sin its power? It's the law. What he's teaching us here is that death only has the victory over us because of sin. And sin only has that condemnation upon us because of the law. If there was the law, if there was no law, there would be no condemnation, right or wrong. Now, there are insects, you know, or, or things that if it bites you, there's some sort of mosquitoes like that too. It should be the thing of mosquitoes like that. That when they bite you, they leave their sting in the victim. And what happens to the insect? It dies. That's what happened to death. Death stung itself to death on Calvary. And they're like the turtle that walks, you know, your head is cut off. But he's still moving. He's dead, but he don't know it. You see? Death stung itself to death at Calvary. That's what this song is all about. You see? No more death. No more sin. No more grave. No more separation from God. We are going to be with him and like him forever. Isn't that going to be great? Wonderful. In a body just like his. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to look like him or look like one another. Our bodies are going to be the same, but we are going to differ in glory. We're going to be just like him as far as our bodies are concerned, but we are still going to be us. You are going to be you, I'm going to be me. Now, I know you might not like that, but I'm sorry again <laughs> about that. But this is what we're looking forward to. This is what Paul is saying. Now, Paul is saying this here. Now, notice what he goes on to say. Application. So, my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. See, that's the application to our life when we understand that the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is real. And what will happen to us? So what does it provide for us? First, it provides an immovable stability. Our future is as sure as the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Secondly, it provides what I call ministry enthusiasm. Serving Christ with passion and glory. And then thirdly, it provides the, the understanding that our life now is worth living. Because what we, what we live for now, and we do it in the power of Christ, that goes on for eternity. You see, the Epicureans were wrong. There is going to be a judgment. 
There is going to be a day of reckoning. But those who are in Christ, who will experience this glorious transformation, we are not told about anything about the transformation of the, bo- of this, of the body of the sinner. Nothing. We know it will last forever, but we don't know in which state. But we know for the believer, we will be just like Christ. We will not only be with him, we will be like him. Amen? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the glorious hope that you've given us. We pray that we might allow the truth of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ to be our motivation for living for you completely every day of the year, every moment of every day. May we live for you, the one who died for us. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.